We're ready to rear off. Good morning the, and welcome to yet another very rushed <laughs> podcast from Reaping Energy because uh, we've got to send our intrepid explorer, Harry Morgan, uh, off to COP26. So it seems obvious that we need to be talking about COP26. And I'm sure we will next week in, in the wake of uh, COP26. Is it relevant? Is COP26 got any relevance to renewable energy? and keeping the climate below 1.5 degrees centigrade. Harry, do you think it is relevant? Yeah, I mean, it should be the most relevant thing in all, I suppose. I think the climate problem is an energy problem, uh, first uh, first and foremost. Once we stop using fossil fuels for our energy, then that's when we've removed most of our emissions. Um, I think when you look at COP26, there's only actually one day of the of the 12 days there that's actually been dedicated as sort of the energy day. Is that because the energy is the most advanced at decarbonising? Potentially, yeah. I mean, also potentially it's it's the area that the government will have the least role. I mean, there's obviously a lot of private uh, drive there. I mean, we've seen that through Australia that almost the, the entirety of their energy transition has been driven by uh, by private companies, public companies, not by the, um, the government. So, in terms of the role that governments play, potentially it's more about sort of the equitable role in the sort of climate finance side of things and making sure that more developed nations actually funding the, the transition of of poorer countries. I think that's that I mean that's gonna be definitely a really big focus of this COP in particular, achieving more things around the the international trade around um carb markets and things like that. So hands be- up, hands up, how many of you have listened to the webinar that I hosted this week? with the two Oxford mathematicians. Well, I did. I mean, the thing about it is, their argument is, where it comes to producing energy centrally for um, for electricity, the renewables are inevitable because of the uh, accelerating price falls, particularly of solar, but also of wind, and, and especially of batteries as well. And that because of those price changes, uh, and because the whole world, including China, looks upon these things and say, well, which is the least cost? Which is going to cost us least for the same amount of energy? That it doesn't matter whether they get it this year, next year, the year after. Sometime in the next three or four years, everyone just just gives up on fossil fuels and says, no, not worth it. You just can't use them. It does not make it cost too much money. And all the habits and all the finance in the world aren't going to... Um, make anybody spend spend on electricity if it's too expensive and especially what is really interesting is china which is the which is centrally coordinated government controlled is the most powerful at this as soon as it says we're losing money by spending it on coal then it it will stop it'll just stop overnight so do we need do we need cop 26 to tell us how to do that yeah, it's, it's all about signalling really COP26. And I think that's, um, yeah, it's a really good point, the whole China and coal thing, because I think that's one of the things that the UK in particular is really looking for in terms of defining success of COP26 is there is this consigning coal history that, they're, that Boris Johnson's really been banging on about. So I tell you, Wood McKenzie hadn't read, uh, read that because I saw a Wood McKenzie report, which is showing coal doing roughly the same amount of trade in 2050 as it's doing today. <laughs> Yeah, which is this morning. I'm just shocked that they can still think that. Yeah, I mean it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, they're just going on the same assumptions they have about carbon price, and they're going on the same assumptions about political will. I think what we could expect to see at at COP26 is China, India, and the USA, who haven't actually set a firm deadline date for 
for coal use in their country, they could start could say we'll try and phase it out entirely by by 2060, 2050. Um, but that's not in China's before. nature, is it? To give you a, a, a date because you asked for it. What What is in their nature is to give you a date as and when they're ready and then beat it by two to three years. Yeah, it's, it's really not the China's thing. I think generally there's this consensus among, especially among the British press, that COP26 going in is already going to not be a success. I mean, Xi Jinping's not going, Vladimir Putin's not going, the Queen's not going, um, as irrelevant as that actually is. Um, I mean, we've got... The Pope. The Pope's not going. We've got so many things at the moment that seem to be contradicting the movements that we want to see at COP26. I mean, the Australian NDC, the Saudi Arabian NDC, the UK budget as well, something that's come out this week that's been very anti what how the UK are trying to frame themselves going into going into the conference as well. The as only the, thing wrong with the UK on, on climate change issues is that they are not, as a government, willing to spend money in sufficient volumes to uh, see through a strategy, except where they're paying for nuclear, and except where they're giving R&D funds for carbon capture, neither of which are going to work. It's, it, the UK nuclear thing is really interesting. Obviously, we've got a lot of nuclear capacity in the country that's going to be phased out in the next sort of five, ten years. So there is going to be this gulf of power that we need. And if we don't replace that with nuclear, then there will be gas in the meantime so it's an interesting thought whether or not it's worth installing a new because i mean a nuclear definitely is a better transition fuel for the climate than the natural gas it's great it's a great transition fuel but it's got to be smrs if you're looking at 94 pounds per megawatt hour and and of course if you translate that to dollars about 120 dollars per megawatt hour from old style 1950 designs 1970 implementation um, large centralized nuclear platforms like Hickley C you're never going to have cheap electricity and you're always going to get the the media uh, their hackles rise and, uh, and defending the common man he can't afford to heat his home it's the choice between eat or heat and and you 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 might be able to do that if the auction system works somewhat differently because the last uh, the, you know the highest price that you strike on sets the price for an entire auction and so you know nuclear is constantly going to be doing what natural gas has been doing for the last couple of months increasing the price of electricity for the average the common, common man you just can't have it like that at, at 70 or 75 pounds per kilo uh, per megawatt hour which smrs you know are going to start at and possibly slide below yeah, you can include them in the mix. But when you're competing with £25 on solar and 44 on on wind, yeah, and, and both are falling rapidly, it doesn't make any sense to go down the old school nuclear route. You've also got to bear in mind that it's how long it takes for these plants to be built. I mean, Sizewell C probably won't come into commission until 2030, by which time wind and solar power will be probably way below, te- uh, below £20 per megawatt hour in the uk so and then you're gonna have to change the auction rules because if you've got something bidding at 20 dollars or 20 pounds and you've got something you know with a government guarantee to reach 94 you've got um the government paying the owners of hinkley c loads of money and and what's the auction price going to be for that electricity you know i mean i just just find it frightening that that's going to define the price of electricity in this country for the next 50 years. And, yeah. and then everyone in the world will have cheap solar energy except us. 
Yeah, it's absolutely absolutely crazy to think that wind and solar power are going to be subsidising nuclear power going forward. And and any persistence we have with gas and carbon capture, I think that's something that's actually something that I think that is potentially an optimistic uh, goal for success at COP26 is a sort of an acknowledgement that that carbon capture really shouldn't have a significant role in the in the energy transition. I think especially as we're looking with sort of things like blue hydrogen, I think it's something that there's be a, a lot more awareness of among policymakers that uh, there are these upstream emissions and limited development in the technology surrounding it and that we can't actually rely on blue hydrogen for this hydrogen economy that we want by 2050. Yeah, the upstream emissions are always going to be there for, for natural gas and it has to be stopped. Yeah, that, I mean, that's another irony ahead of COP26 that there's been a massive methane leak that they detected literally by Glasgow uh, <laughs> at the conference. So I think that is, it, yeah, it just highlights the, the challenge. Not hot air from the politicians, is it? I mean, yeah, I expect a lot more to be uh, over the next two weeks. I think, yeah. Or do we already know what everyone's turning up uh, there with? Yeah, that's that's a good question. They do do make decisions. They basically go with a set of cards that says, well, if I'm forced, I I can play this card. So so there are announcements that actually happen semi-live and and are decisions made from committee meetings. Uh, If they will give this away, I'll give this away. You know, and then they get in a meeting, they agree and then they come and announce it. That has happened in the past. The extent to which um, it happens this time is to be seen. Yeah, I think there's several key policies that or plans that people want to want to finalise and get the sort of the whole of the UN to agree. So I think the, the finding sort of a, a deadline for global coal would be one uh, potentially potentially overly ambitious when you're looking at China and India. But I think I, I, I think the most like, significant thing that's going to happen there is that before Joe Biden gets on a plane, he's going to get some kind of agreement for the Democrat Party and what it can and cannot spend. It doesn't matter that it may be less ambitious than he's planned. If he puts a trillion dollars behind behind renewable energy, even not, not 3.5, just a trillion, and he gets that through uh, an agreed process, um, you know, that, that the all the Democrats will vote for it, uh, even if it hasn't actually been through the voting process. If he announces that, here's, here's one of the dynamics it, it creates. I mean, we know that the best solar... Uh, the most solar is made in China. He wants to reverse that. He wants lots of solar to be made in America. We know that there's the, the only GE makes wind turbines and they and they, and they only make good offshore wind turbines. They're, they're mostly only dominant in America. If he can do something about that, he he will. If if especially batteries, if he can put if he can stimulate the, the purchase of electric vehicles even more aggressively in America and he has a concrete plan that's been certified by the American government, it puts China under pressure. It basically says we are going to keep catch up with you. We've got better technology and we're going to make this a, a, a proper battle um, in the marketplace instead of oh, we're just going to put um, we're just going to put um uh, import duties uh, in the way. I think that's the that's the most significant thing we can get out of this. It, just suddenly the market comes alive because m- there is money from America. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's uh, I think money from America is something that would, would be huge. I think having some of that money allocated to the global transition and funding renewable energy in other countries would be great. I think they're looking for a hundred billion to be leveraged for for emerging markets from sort of the, the economic leaders, I guess. 
And that just means for other countries. I mean, I mean, for projects, in, you know, for, for projects inside of America, obviously for other countries also. Yeah, I mean, it, it should also help leverage a lot of other funding. I mean, you wrote this, Peter, about, uh, wrote this week, Peter, about um, a lot of the deals that are seeing hydrogen stocks um, and and Tesla actually soar, uh, soaring again. And I think that's something that potentially we could expect to see. I think I told you not to sell your Tesla stock. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And I think the the that's I think that's one of the metrics we can use actually to define the success of COP26 is which direction renewable energy stocks move afterwards. That's true. Um, that's true. I mean, I think I think um, I think we're uh, we're now starting to see. So I'm really looking forward to seeing your report. We're going to talk about it uh, between ourselves after this meeting. But your report on uh, your forecast for hydrogen, global hydrogen. That's I think no one's done a forecast which is credible so far. Um, most forecasts have been, yeah, what's going to happen? Probably not very much. It's mostly going to be blue. I think as soon as people understand hydrogen properly. That, uh, and the way the pricing is going to transform it um, in the same way that it's done to renewables and what, what the tipping points are, um, the timeframes. I think suddenly, you know, hydrogen becomes one of those things which sets your share price alight if you're involved in it. So, uh, you know, there are naysayers in America, mostly only in America, saying there's not going to be a hydrogen industry. In fact, if anything, hydrogen demand is going to drop, not rise. Now, they're all Americans because they're not thinking outside the box. They're thinking that, that you, you know, it's the existing electrolyzers. It's not fresh designs that are going to take us forward. And I think that's that's really going to be... Um, a massive wave of investment because as soon as Tesla's share price went up, Ford, General Motors, they followed them. They followed their strategy within a year. As soon as companies involved in the hydrogen revolution go up, and, and specifically green, then the oil companies are screwed. They either follow and do it green or they're, or they're done for. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the companies I'm quite intrigued to watch at the moment is Nikola because I think we've seen plug bloom clean energy all go up really really significantly this week but Nikola's obviously been absolutely crushed by these short reports um, and hasn't really moved back up so I think if we see Nikola with a few more deals in a few weeks their share price could go absolutely through the roof also but zero Nikola, Nikola went up it was only about eight or nine percent um in October um, it, it, you know, it did, just went up a tiny bit. No one trusts the, the, the company because of the, the CEO basically told a few fibs. Uh, and I know he's gone. I mean, I think if they announce orders, and we thought they were going to announce orders before last Christmas. I mean, let's, we're coming up to this Christmas. There's been virtually no, no deal activity around Nicola in, in a whole year. I'll, t- I'll tell you who is announcing orders at the moment. I think this is really exciting is Zero Avia in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, hydrogen-powered aircraft. How many how um, many orders they got? Well, they've signed they signed a deal with a company in the Netherlands to actually have a commercial flights running from 2024, and that's commercial flights as well. That's not that's not pilots. That's actually flying passengers. What, what's the maximum um, passenger size? So 19 is what they're going for at the start. So obviously that's a pretty small scale, but with you that, see, why is nobody remodeling? The, air, the, the airline industry, because that's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, we're going to suddenly have the equivalent of a lithium-ion battery. It will, it will be driven by lithium-ion battery, but we, you're going to have that sudden, a small unit that you can repeat many times. And air travel is going to change. It's going to change, and it may change in price, and it, it may become slightly exorbitant. But everyone's got, got this idea that, that these alternative fuels 
are going to um, you know, give us some kind of mitigation. And there will be some mitigation from SAF, but it's only an, inter it's an interim technology like natural gas was for the electricity market, i.e. not really. And um, yeah, electric flight, you get one model in one country that's successful, take off like wildfire, you'll have entrepreneurs you know, inventing airline, the airline business, reinventing the airline business. Peter, would, would you get on board one? Of course. Okay. <laughs> I, I would imagine that's the, the paramount, you know, safety is the paramount uh, concern with new it's fuel. Not, it's not difficult to design a spare battery that will keep you in the air and measure how far you are from the nearest airport at any point in time to make sure you could always come down uh, in an emergency landing on, you know, on spare battery. It's not, it's, it's not a big engineering problem. I think a good question to ask, uh, ask Simon is, is if I asked you, would you get an electric, would you get an electric car? You'd say yes, right? Yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, point, but, but yeah. 10, 10, 15 years ago, if you said you get an electric car with all the um, the battery explosions that people were scared, <laughs> right? People okay. wouldn't be doing it. So I think it's that it's just that um, okay. it's that process, and we're just and we're just in that stage now with hydrogen powered uh, transport. True. But yeah, and, and, and look, listen, the belief problem. It's really, you know, I was originally not a fan of hybrid cars, not at all, not even plug-in hybrids, but certainly not mild hybrids. But actually, as a, as a way of getting people used to the idea, um, people, I know people with mild hybrids, which means they, they, they still put petrol in their car, but they get 90 miles to the gallon because they, they're, they're, using, they're driving on their battery when they've got some. So that suddenly means they're using half as much petrol. It helps, and it certainly helps the mentality. And then they go to a plug-in hybrid uh, that says, well, yeah, I'm gonna, I, I promise I'm gonna plug it in every week. And they forget, and they use even less petrol, but they use some, until finally you go, yeah, oh, I could do this on, on, a, on, a, on a battery electric vehicle. I'll just need a battery. Uh, and it's, it's a way of building confidence over time. 